Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Today's encore presentation is how parents' relationships are affected by having a child with a congenital heart defect. This episode is very near and dear to my heart because one of the guests happens to be my husband. This is from season one of Heart to Heart with Anna, and the theme for season one was You Are Not Alone. With this show, I really wanted us to talk about how parents' relationships are affected when they have a child with a congenital heart defect, and I wanted to present it in a very positive light. I'm sure you will enjoy this special encore presentation. Today just happens to be my husband's and my 30th wedding anniversary, and so that is one of the reasons why I wanted to present this encore presentation today. I hope you enjoy this special encore presentation with Brenda Vignaroli, Leah Lowry, and Frank Jaworski as they investigate ways that parents' relationships are affected by having a child with a congenital heart defect. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the 11th episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Today's episode is called, How Parents' Relationships Are Affected by Having a Child with a Congenital Heart Defect. According to the American Psychological Association, marriage and divorce are both common experiences. In Western cultures, more than 90% of people marry by age 50. Healthy marriages are good for a couple's mental and physical health. They are also good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. However, about 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce. I scoured the Internet for statistics on families of children with congenital heart defects and was only able to find one small study. That study was from 1979 and 1980 pediatric cardiology, and it only looked at 40 families of children with tetralogy of fallot. What they concluded was that stress due to repairable tetralogy of fallot appears to be well tolerated in the family and is associated with no more family instability or marriage dissolution than a childhood appendectomy. But I wondered how many families of children with other congenital heart defects fared. It seemed that I had quite a few friends who had children with heart defects who were divorced, but likewise I have a number of friends whose children are heart healthy and who also divorced. Thus, I put together a 10-question survey and asked friends of mine on Facebook and Twitter to take the survey. To my surprise, even though I came up with the survey idea less than 24 hours before the taping of this show, we had 305 people respond to the survey. Of those who responded, approximately 78% were married to the spouse they had the child with, 11% were divorced, 3% were separated, 6% were together but not married, 2% were not together and had never been married, and less than 1% were widowed or widowers. This means that, according to my small sample, there are more married couples or families that are together but not married with children with congenital heart defects than the United States national average. Of those who answered the survey who were divorced, approximately 48% said they felt their child's congenital heart defect contributed to the demise of the marriage. 30% said it was not a contributing factor, 18% said it was a partial factor, and 3% were unsure whether or not their child's heart defect contributed to their divorce. 
Each of our guests today is the parent of a child with a congenital heart defect. Our guests today are Brenda Vignaroli, Leah Ann Lowry, and Frank Jaworski. And they will tell us about what kind of relationships they are in and how having a child with a congenital heart defect has affected their relationship. Brenda writes, I am the single parent of two daughters, Kara, who is a 31-year-old, feisty, heart-healthy young woman, and Jessica, 28, born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Jessica is the second oldest survivor of HLHS from UCLA Medical Center. I was married during the first two surgeries Jessica endured, the Norwood and then the Glenn Shunt procedures. By the third and final surgery, my marriage began to wane, and Jessica's father had left the state and abandoned the family, which forced me to face this most difficult time without a spouse and Jessica without a father. I was forced to go back to work. I spent the next 28 years working in the design department of a major apparel company, Olga Varnoco, in Van Nuys, California. I couldn't have done it without the love, strength, and protection from my very loving family who supported and cared for us during those very trying times. We'll meet Leah and Frank later in our show. Thank you, Brenda, for being on the show. Hi, Anna. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Brenda, you have one heart-healthy daughter, Kara, and you had her before you had your daughter, Jessica, with a heart defect. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your marriage in those early years and how things changed after you had Jessica? Uh, Yes. Um, We had a a very strong marriage the first uh, few years uh, with very few problems and struggles, nothing out of what I would call ordinary. Um, But looking back now... um, there were some signs, uh, but at the time I didn't—I don't think I put a connection to it or realized um, that the problems that Larry was struggling with at the time was um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and basically because he had served in Vietnam in the late 60s and had seen um, some pretty horrible things there, and uh, he rarely talked about, you know. His experiences, but um, there were some that that actually did leave scars. And uh, certain noises, what I noticed down the line, certain noises in the house would, would, you know, start and cause a reaction, and it it grew into a more intense um, uh, thing. You know, after just after the birth of Jessica, you could just tell that he was being bothered. uh, You know, very irritable. And um, instability set in, and uh, his job began to wane, and our finances were suffering. And so, um, you know, I know now that um, I think I was in total denial of what was going on there and not able to know what to do about it and how to fix it, you know. So um, my plate at, at that time was pretty full caring for the two girls and uh you know, trying to hold down a job, too, at the same time. So um, things started to unravel pretty quickly there. Right. So it sounds like things were pretty complicated. I wasn't aware that your husband had PTSD from serving in the military. I wonder if having Jessica just exacerbated that condition. Up and call back. Yes, um he did have PTSD, and uh, he served in, in Vietnam, and as I said, he had seen some, I guess, some pretty horrible things, which he didn't like to share. But um, after the birth of Jessica, everything seemed to go pretty well for the first um, three or four years and the first two surgeries that she had gone through. And so it was... Uh, in between the the second and third surgery that things really started to deteriorate and uh, he began to drink with a little bit more than usual and uh, so that that was complicating things as well. So it sounds like the first surgery you all weathered okay and I actually understand from other parents that sometimes they do better in a crisis situation and that when the crisis is over then they start to have problems. But it sounds like that's not exactly what happened with you. It sounds like you all were able to weather the first storm, but then it was between the surgeries that things started to deteriorate. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I, I believe that dealing with um, a child with a very critical, you know, life-threatening 
circumstances as Jessica had, and with all of the the stress uh, that accompanies that, it can it can really cause some people to be stronger, and it can cause some people to be weaker. And and actually, uh, you know, both of those things were were, were taking place in my marriage, and uh, I was dealing with with both of those uh, you know issues. And um, the first five years of my marriage. Um, was you know pretty pretty uh, it was pretty trying because of everything you know I would say the same that anybody else would as far as that goes but uh, it, it just became more complicated with all of the drinking issues and and things like that and the uncertainties um, that we didn't know that, what was happening with Jessica and, and that was simply horrifying you know. Right. Would you tell our listeners the year that Jessica was born? Yes, she was born in 1985. So that was quite a long time ago, and she's Mm -hmm. practically a pioneer, especially in your part of the country, for surviving the surgical repairs. Yes. um, Yeah, she was the second uh, oldest survivor at UCLA. And um, so it was, you know... I, at the time, too, we were given a 1% chance, and we were told when they were describing what we were going to go through and how they were going to do this, um, that it was a 1% chance of survival, and that was just pretty overwhelming and scary in, in its own, you know, sense. But um, Right, and you didn't even have a support group to turn to. I mean, you were really kind of out there all by yourself, and this is in the days before the Internet. You must have felt so unbelievably lonely. Absolutely. Um, I remember going into the library at, at UCLA uh, when, we're, when we were down there for some of our you know, visits and things, trying to find and scrape up any kind of information that I could pull together. And I, I was sitting on the floor of the library there, and I found one book with one little sentence or two, I think it had, and it, it, it was just very basic. It just kind of described, uh, you know, the hypoplastic left heart with no references or anything like that to turn to. So, it, yeah, it was very, very scary and, you know, confusing, to say the least. I, the only thing I actually knew about hypoplastic left heart, because uh, I had done some reading, um, was that uh, there was another baby that had been born, baby Faye, uh, mm-hmm. with the same condition, and I believe she lasted 19 days, um, and she had the baboon heart transplant. And so I, I'm sure most of us know that case. Um, Absolutely. Well, most of us older parents do. (laughs) I'm sure. I don't know if the newbie parents do know about that, but yes, and that was all over the news. That was all over the news when I was in high school. And so when Alex was born and the doctor was telling me about the condition, I said to him, well, can he get a transplant? And he said no. And I said, well, I thought that there was a baby that got a baboon heart transplant. Come to find out, my son had the same heart defect that she did, but our son was in congestive heart failure, so transplant wasn't even an option. Was transplant even an option for Jessica? Actually, it was. Um, at that time, uh, um, she would have been the first heart transplant at UCLA, and, and they were prepping her for that, you know, um, I, I had received a phone call, and uh, they were talking about doing this. But during the time, during the wait time um, that Jessica had, uh, another little boy was given um, the heart transplant, and it was uh, down at Loma Linda. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Loma Linda, I believe the heart transplant went to. Um, if I get his name right, I, I think it was Baby Gabriel. I'm not. I'm not really sure. About I, I remember reading about him. Yes. Yeah, and so uh, because of that, they 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 had no choice but to go ahead with the Norwood procedure. And um, you know, I was of course I was fine with that. I just all I knew is I just wanted my my baby to live, and whatever mm-hmm. it took, you know, whatever it took to 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 do that, I was you know game. For it. Yeah, so, um, I hear you. I felt the same way. I was willing to do. I'm sure we all of us life. did. Yeah, we've all probably all 
You know, it's kind of amazing, too, to me, is that we've all felt the same. Uh, reading over your, you know, a lot of uh, your website and everything and the people that have come in and, and left messages and comments, it's it's amazing how close we all are together in this and how our feelings all seem to mesh with each other. You know, we've been through everything the same the same feelings and the same circumstance, and it's just amazing to me, you know, over all of these years, mine happening 27, 28 years ago, and even now still, as, as you know, as long as this has been going on, the, the feelings and the circumstances are all still pretty close, you know, to the, the same. They really are, Brenda. So, right before we go to break, if you could just give us a a piece of advice to help parents who are facing having multiple surgeries with their children, what would be the one golden nugget of advice you would share? Oh, my advice for, for others um, would be uh, for any parent facing such a difficult situation um, would first and foremost be to, to stand strong in your faith. And, um, you know, if you have family that is there to support you, let them support you, let them, you know, allow them to be there for you. And, um, you know, doing doing this alone is, is it's almost impossible. And uh, your child needs all of the love and support, of course, that the family can muster up. So that would be one of, um, you know, my, my biggest things. But uh, if I have a chance to say, you know, when... Um, my mother found out about this. Uh, she told me, Brenda, he never will give you more than you can handle. And that stuck with me, and, uh, you know, that, that's where I got the, the title for, you know, my little story that I did in the heart of the mother, you know, never more than you can handle. That's where that came from. And, boy, mm-hmm. it sure has rang true with me, you know. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your advice and sharing your experiences with us, Brenda. Now I have to go to a commercial break, but don't leave. Coming up, we have another heart mom who will be sharing her story with us. Find out how she dealt with divorce, loneliness, and depression, and whether or not she ever found love again when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with congenital heart defect parents and how having a child with a congenital heart defect has affected their marriage. We just finished talking with Brenda Vignaroli about her experience with abandonment by her husband after he couldn't handle having a chronically ill child and how Brenda and her lovely daughters have thrived in spite of that. And now we will turn our attention to Leah Lowry. Leah wrote, my name is Leah Lowry. I'm a mother of five, two of which are in heaven. I have one girl and four boys. I'm a funeral director in Balmer and work part-time at Greater Jackson Mortuary. I am the founder of Praying Hearts, which is a Christian support group for heart families. 
I have served as a coordinator for Mississippi Mended Little Hearts. I spend lots of time working with heart families and fundraising for Mississippi's Bastion Children's Hospital. I was, it was a passion given to me after my journey with my son Pierce was born with critical aortic stenosis. We lost Jonathan when he was three years old. He was killed in a car accident in 2003. Then we lost Pierce at three months of age when he lost his fight with his congenital heart defect on January 15, 2010. My marriage wasn't able to withstand so much loss. I have since remarried a wonderful man, Rodney Lowry, who is supportive of all of my efforts to help other families. We will meet Frank Jaworski in our next segment. Thank you, Leah, for coming on Heart to Heart with Anna. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me. Well, Leah, it's hard enough for any couple to lose even one child, but to lose two children in just a matter of years, it's almost incomprehensible to me. Can you tell us what your relationship with your husband was like before you lost Jonathan and Pierce? Um, just like with any marriage, uh, we had our normal our normal strains, but sadly, before Pierce was born, we were legally separated. Um, mm-hmm. We did not know anything was wrong with Pierce while I was pregnant and until shortly after he was born. Uh, we were informed that he had critical aortic stenosis um, and needed services um, ASAP. Um, Pierce's journey actually pulled me and my husband back together because we flew from Mississippi to Washington, D.C. for help. Um, And then shortly after a month there, we flew to Little Rock, Arkansas to wait for a heart transplant. And my husband and I were just so committed that no matter what we had to do to get along and for the other children um, to get Pierce a new heart and get home, we were going to do it. Um, And we, we worked hard together through that. So your experience um, clearly mirrors other people that I have talked to that said that having to fight this monster known as congenital heart defects, it actually brought you and your husband closer. It did. It did. But Um, then the loss, it it must have been the loss, two terrible losses. How how close were the losses? uh, Within seven years apart, from 2003 Uh, to 2010. Wow. So um, did you go to grief counseling to try and deal with those losses? He was not up for counseling. Um, I think he had more trouble feeling left out, and because of the the passion and the things that I started doing um, in Pierce's name and legacy, it angered him, Anna. He said he felt mm-hmm. like um, using Pierce's story was helping all these other children and heart families live, but yet we lost ours, and he just he couldn't work through that. Yeah. And and you see people, men and women, who will get stuck in one of those areas of grief, either the blaming or the, the anger phase, and it's so hard to work to get out of it. And I really think that you have to work to get out of it. It doesn't happen by itself. It's easy to get stuck. Yes, you do have to work at it, yes. So you became a grief counselor, or you studied grief counseling. Isn't that true? I did. Um, When I went back to school in mortuary, we learned a lot through grief counseling and dealing with families, um, especially families that lose children, because that's one of the the hardest families that you'll ever deal with. It's not natural for our children to live before us. I, I can't imagine facing that voluntarily on a regular basis like you must when you first started to have to deal with families who lost a child, did a wave of emotion come over you? Did it take you back to you losing your son? Oh, no, 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 no. It gave me a passion because I've already experienced that hurt um, and that disappointment and just that emptiness that goes there. So when families that I have worked with come in and have experienced that, it kind of gives me an extra touch to know what to make everything flow for them and to make it easier for them and and to make it memorable. Wow, that's a real gift. That is a gift for you to be able to take your tragedy and turn it into a vehicle to help other families. I enjoy doing it. Um, I find a lot of purpose and passion out of it, a lot of fulfillment. So what advice would you give to other parents who are facing marital problems due to having a child with a heart defect? I would say, even with any marriage, it's it's teamwork and effort. You're in it together for each other and for the children. 
And I try even now with all the heart families I work with in Mississippi to encourage them, you know, to stand strong and support each other, um, not just for your marriage but for your children and your heart child because they need both mom and dad there. Uh, mm-hmm. They need each other for support. Right. That's so true. So as tragic as your story could be, you have found love again. And I found that to be very inspirational. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you to find your current husband and what it has meant for your children to have a father in their life? Uh, Rodney has been amazing. Um, Most men, Anna would probably be scared to even try to date a single mother that's lost two children. That would be a red flag. Um, But he wasn't. I think he was very intrigued with me, and he is so supportive of all the work and the things that we do for our hospital. And he seems to enjoy meeting a lot of the families and um, working in the projects and things that we do. He must be a very special man. I think he is. I tell him all the time that God sent him to me. (laughs) It sounds like you needed someone like him in your life, too, because... You suffered the loss of two children, and then you suffered the loss of your marriage. So you went through three major losses in a fairly short period of time. I did, and he has he has been really good, Anna, with dealing with things. There are, as anybody that gets divorced or experienced the loss of a loved one, there are times when someone's behavior, you know, is different. And he's good at taking a step back and trying to realize, you know, what is Leah thinking or how is she feeling mm-hmm. before I say something. <laughs> and I He's a very that. wise man. <laughs> a lot of men would not do that, but there's those moments, and I just put my arms around him and I hug him and I just tell him, "I love you and thank you for putting up with me." Yeah. Wow. It sounds like he is such a special person. So, tell me, what would be your last piece of advice that you would offer our listeners, both as a professional and as a mom? You've been through so much with considering the loss that you've had, the loss of the dream of having a perfect child, and then you lost your children to death, and then you lost your marriage. So you've dealt with a lot of loss. What what kind of advice can you give our listeners about dealing with that loss and, and how to make it through and be happy again? Well, the first thing I would tell them is that you just you have to find God and hold on to him. And one of my favorite scriptures is, be still and know that I'm God, Psalms 4610. Um, I don't think without God surrounding me with so many family, friends, and support would I have made it through what I've been through. And I've also learned to become a victor instead of a victim in every situation that happens. Hold your head up and keep on going and putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and God will bless you. Um, Things will end up slowly turning out because it is hard losing a child. It's hard getting divorced, and it's hard having a child, as you said, that's not born perfect or that has a heart defect. Um, And you have to just surround yourself with friends. Be open for that. Don't shut it out. So it sounds to me like a lot of your friends are on Facebook. Did you have a lot of Facebook friends when you were going through all of this, or is this something that's new for you? Um, I've had an average group of friends, Anna, but, you know, when I went through this, there were heart moms that just came out of the woodworks to me, Uh, two very special people here in Mississippi, Christy Pena and Erin Askew, that never let a day go by once they heard of my journey, emailed me um, and spoke with me constantly. And that was so uplifting to log in and see all these sayings of, I'm a heart mom too, you know, I'm praying for Mm -hmm. you, I'm thinking about you. It made me not feel alone. Right, right. In fact, it was Christy Pena who told me about you. And when she found out I was doing this show, she said, oh, my goodness, you have to have Leah on your show. Oh, she's so sweet. She's been (laughs) such a backbone for me. Even since it's been going on four years since I've lost Pierce, she is still such a backbone for me. Well, and I think that that just shows our listeners that we moms and dads in the heart world, we have the chance to reach out and help other people who are going through the same things that we're going through or even going through something different from us. But just because we're all heart moms, it kind of makes us sisters and brothers in in a very special world, don't you think? I do. I do. And I think we should share our stories and reach out to others because, like I said, it lets them know that they're not alone, that they're not the only ones that are dealing with this, that there are others. Absolutely. That's, I couldn't say it better myself. Thank you so much for being on the show, Leah. Oh, well, thank you, Anna, for having me. It was a pleasure. 
Well, now it's time for a commercial break, but don't go far. Stay tuned to find out how another parent of a child with a critical congenital heart defect dealt with his relationships and find out what this nurse thinks has helped him to cope when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, the Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we've been talking to heart parents about how having a child with a congenital heart defect affects their relationships. We just finished talking with Brenda and her experience with divorce and Leah and her experience with divorce and remarriage in the heart community, and now we will meet Frank Jaworski. Frank wrote, I am the father of two sons, Joseph, who is 22 and heart healthy, and Alexander, who is 19 and was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS, after birth. My wife, Anna, and I went through two open-heart surgeries with Alex before his first birthday, and a third when Alex was 17. We have been happily married for 27 years. We live in Central Texas, where I work as a certified registered nurse anesthetist. My wife, Anna, is the author and publisher of several books written for the congenital heart defect community, and I have assisted her as illustrator and editor. I am also the vice president of Baby Hearts Press and the vice president of the nonprofit organization that we founded called Hearts Unite the Globe. I am an avid supporter and advocate for the congenital heart defect community. So welcome to Heart to Heart, Frank. Let's start your segment by sharing that you are not only my guest, but you're also my husband. Yes, I am. And uh, finally, I get to be on your show. I've been looking forward to this. I know. I'm looking forward to it, too. We haven't really discussed the questions beforehand, so I'm eager to see what you decide to say. So let's start by talking about how you first found out about Alex's heart defect and how that affected you. Well, when Alex was born, literally seconds after he was born, it looked to me like he was breathing too fast. I am a nurse, and I've seen a lot of babies, and he seemed like he was breathing very rapidly. And I told the pediatrician that, correction, the the OB-GYN doctor that, and she said, oh, don't worry about it. It's newborn breathing. He's fine. That went on for eight weeks, eight weeks of fast breathing, difficulty feeding, all kinds of problems keeping him awake during feeding. And you and I were both suspicious there was something more going on, but everybody told us he was fine. And then at eight weeks, he went for a well baby checkup, and you called me from the clinic and said they're admitting Alex to the hospital. And that's when we found out he had a more serious problem. That was also when they, they put him in the hospital, and they, the doctor's first suspicion was that he might have uh, cystic fibrosis. And so we were worried about that, and they were going to test him the next day. But the night he was in the hospital, at our local hospital, one of the nurses on the floor insisted that the resident get a chest X-ray, which hadn't been done, which looking back on it is just unexplainable. The chest X-ray showed that he apparently had a very enlarged heart and probably a congenital heart defect, and that changed the path of their diagnosis very rapidly. He got a echocardiogram the next day. They did a echo that showed that he did have a complex heart defect, sent him to San Antonio, and he was catheterized, uh, did a heart cath that day or the next day, I can't recall exactly, and they decided that uh, he had a, a complex defect and required surgery. 
So it was a very fast transition from we think there's something wrong to we know exactly what's wrong. So, Frank, how did that make you feel? I mean, I remember back then it felt like it was a whirlwind. Everything happened so fast. How were you feeling at that time? Well, at the time, uh, I didn't know much about about congenital heart defects or pediatric heart problems, and I really did not know how serious it was. But that didn't mean I didn't think it was serious. I didn't know if he was going to be fine or if he was going to die en route to the hospital in San Antonio. It was a two-hour drive, and it was terrifying. But uh, yeah. I couldn't ride with you. I had to go take care of our other son, and you'd rode down the ambulance with him, and I was just glad that he was still alive when I got there. Yes. I know. For me, that was one of the worst parts was that we were separated by three hours uh, from the time that I left the hospital to three hours to get to the next hospital. You were still trying to take care of Joey, and I think we were both trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And this was in the days before cell phones. Today, we would be texting back forth with each other, but back then, we had no communication. Yes. And I, I do recall that Ed, after he was uh, transported out and I went to go take care of Joey, the one thing I wanted to do is go back to the doctors who had told us, oh, nothing's wrong, and yell at them and say, see, we were right, there is something wrong. Yeah, I can imagine you felt angry because for the listeners who don't know our story, we had been taking Alex back and forth to the hospital every other day for the first 10 days of his life because both of us were so concerned. And then, of course, he had his one-month well-baby checkup, and we were still concerned at that point. And I had taken him to see lactation consultants. And so for that whole eight weeks, you and I were saying something's wrong, something's wrong, and nobody would agree with us. Nobody would listen to us. So I know that you had to be angry. I was extremely frustrated, too. So what advice would you give to another family who is experiencing something like what you and I did, where you know something's wrong, but then the professionals are telling you, no, it's it's okay, and then you do find out something devastating is, is really wrong with your child? Well, the first stage, when they're telling you, oh, everything's okay, I would suggest you be persistent and do some reading as early as you can into what the symptoms are, what they could indicate, and ask people from different areas if you can. And then once you find out, you have to let the anger go and just focus on taking care of your child as fast as possible. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. I think things were a little bit different for you because you were a nurse and you had already worked in an intensive care unit. Can you tell our listeners some of the difficulties, though, that you experienced because of your nursing background and how you handled things differently with Alex's second and third operations? Well, first of all, my experience was not in pediatric ICU. It was in adult ICU, which there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. One of the things that made it a lot easier for me was that when you see a child and you see anybody who's in your family in the ICU and they've been seriously ill, had an injury or, or a surgery, is that they have IVs and drains and tubes and wires. And that, that in itself is very scary and unnatural. But to me, it was the most natural thing in the world. I saw that all the time. So that didn't bother me. I could see Alex with all that equipment on him and still see that it was Alex. I wasn't distracted by the other things. And I also wasn't bothered by blood and things like that, which affected a lot of people differently. I would have to say that dealing with the nurses and doctors in the unit was, was potentially one of the biggest hazards because some of the nurses didn't want to acknowledge the fact that I was a nurse and, in fact, told me when I was there I wasn't a nurse. I was just a dad. But the best support that I had was from Alex's surgeon. His, his surgeon told us bluntly that uh, that and the, the nurses that they should listen to me and respect me and answer my questions honestly. And so every day when I came in to see him, I read his chart. I read everything that was new coming out, the lab work and that sort of thing. And the surgeon respected me and actually took me to show me his morning x-rays every day to explain what was going on. And so that, that communication and the respect that I got from the staff made a big difference. And it enabled me to, to communicate with the rest of the family also and tell them what was going on, hopefully, in, in a more meaningful way. Now, his, his second and third surgeries, we were better prepared. And it made a huge difference, especially for the third surgery, because Alexander, during the third surgery, he... Uh, was conscious of everything. And so, of course, he wasn't as a baby. And so he trusted me, and he, he believed that I knew what I was talking about, and if the nurses and doctors told him a thing and I told him the same thing, he was more likely to believe it and go along with it. And that was a good thing. I think that was a good thing. And I think what you said about Dr. Calhoun being respectful of you, that was very helpful. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I found out during the second operation that some of the nurses thought we were abusive parents because Alex was so late in being diagnosed. 
And I think, unfortunately, some of them kind of held us at arm's length because they were assessing if we were abusive parents or not. I had heard that, and I think you told me about that, and that, that's frustrating to deal with, but it, it is very common, speaking as a nurse myself, that if you see a child who has problems, that you know, not necessarily injuries, but problems like these that appeared to have been skipped over, that it would be very easy to think that they had been abusive or neglectful parents. And I understand where that, come, where that comes from, but it also makes me more aware now, as a nurse, to be more respectful of the parents and to, and to to not assume that there's a problem, to go with, with, with the basic idea that they are caring parents first. Don't make an assumption. One of the right. one of the most fascinating experiences I had in Alex's second hospitalization was I was on on duty as at work because you and I shifted days and nights and I was on night shift and Dr. Calhoun came in to see Alex and said and said hey I'm going to give a talk to some medical students do you want to come along and so I went with him over to the building next door and I sat in the back of a group of about 30 medical students and he told them about hypoplastic left heart syndrome and the impact on families that was the purpose of his lecture then he turned to me and said tell me what you think about this and tell these students your experience and so I got to lecture the medical students for 20 minutes about what it's like being a parent. And I, that w- it was a tremendous stroke to my ego to be told that, that, I, that I, my opinion mattered. And I really enjoyed it. And hopefully I gave some of those students a chance to understand that parents are still human beings and we want to know what's going on too. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you were very articulate and you were able to explain to these medical students what it's like to be the parent of a child with a heart defect. Most people, thankfully, who are going through medical school don't have a child who has a heart defect. And I think that it helps them to hear from people like you and me and and the other people who are talking with us on this radio show about what it is like for us, because I think that can make them more compassionate doctors. I agree completely. So, Frank, what is the single most important thing you think that we did together that helped us get through all of Alex's operations and uncertainties and and still keep this marriage, I think, even stronger than ever before? I agree. Our marriage has gotten stronger through this, although it's not it's not a path I would recommend. It's a therapy for people that have marital <laughs> problems. It's it's too hard of a road that way. But I would say the single most important thing we do is we communicate. We talk about what our feelings are when things are going wrong. We talk about things that we can do to make things better. We try to understand each other, and we talk a lot about all kinds of things. We talk in writing. We talk face-to-face, and we talk with our kids, too. Yeah. Communication is so important to success as, as a married couple, and it's, it's ten times more so when you have a critical health problem like this. And if you don't tell people that you're feeling scared or upset or you don't understand things, then the problems just multiply because you're not communicating. I agree with you. I think communication is essential. And unfortunately, when you're going through a crisis like this, sometimes you're going through a a phase of grief where it's hard to communicate. And I really appreciated when we were going through some really difficult times when you knew I just needed some time and space and I couldn't talk. And I think we were both good at just giving each other some time and space when we felt the other person needed it. But we always were there to talk with each other through everything. I agree with you. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being on the show, and I want to thank again Brenda and Leah, and I think this has been a really important show to talk about how having a child with a congenital heart defect does affect relationships. I think it's it's a (laughs) no-brainer. Of course, having something this stressful is going to affect relationships, but I really appreciate Brenda and Leah and Frank sharing their experiences and their advice for how we can get through this and be empowered, not be victims. I really like what Leah said about being a victor, and I do think that even though this is a very difficult thing to go through, that we can come out stronger, each of us individually and as couples, if we're lucky enough to be able to work through it. But now it's time for another commercial break. Don't leave yet because we still have our miracle moment and today's miracle moment it comes from the heart of a father and it's entitled battling the dragon you'll hear more about that when we return Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, 
a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Now for our miracle moment. Our miracle moment today comes from the heart of a father, and it's written by Andrew Ward. Andrew's Ward is entitled Battling the Dragon, and he writes, I sometimes wonder why we frequently expect a happy ending. I once went to the cinema to watch a film called Dragon Slayer. It was traditional fantasy fare. A virgin sacrifice is offered to a dragon in return for sparing the kingdom, and a valiant young knight must save the day and win the princess's love. Only in Dragon Slayer, the dragon eats the princess, then nearly kills the knight. The knight is saved at the last minute from certain death by the timely intervention of a young girl from his village. Not the standard happy ending we come to expect in our media-driven, good guys always win in the end world. Of course, in our world, the prince is just an ordinary man. The princess is an ordinary woman. And the dragon? The dragon is just the normal pressures and stresses that life throws our way. The fact is, in the real world, sometimes the good guys lose. Sometimes the dragon eats the princess. Sometimes there is no happy ending. My wife and I met on a beautiful summer day. She was a student struggling to make ends meet. I was a salesman struggling to build a career. Less than a year later, we were married. We helped each other through the thick and thin in those early years. Neither of us could hold a job for long, so eventually we gave up on the city and moved to a smaller town where the living was less expensive. We walked hand-in-hand along deserted beaches. We sat and gazed into each other's eyes over candlelit dinners. We knew we would be together forever. We would be one of the couples to make it. The arrival of our first child in our third year of marriage was cause for great excitement. We bought a house and started renovating it. When he was born, we thought that our new son, Jamie, was perfect. He filled a gap in our world that we hadn't even known existed. My wife elected to stay home with him while I continued working, and we settled into a happy family life. Two years later, we were blessed with another child, Nicholas. He was the cutest baby, and we were convinced we had the two most perfect little boys in the world. How lucky we were we had each other, a home, and two beautiful children. Then the sky fell in. On his second day with us, Nicholas was flown by air ambulance to a specialist unit in a hospital three hours away. He was diagnosed with tricuspid atresia with atrial ventricular septal defects. Roughly translated, his heart was missing one of the four valves and had two huge holes in it. We were told he would be lucky to see his fifth birthday. The months that followed while we were waiting for him to be strong enough for surgery were amongst the hardest of my life. Two weeks to breastfeed, we bottle-fed him. When he grew too weak to suck from the bottle, we used a tube in his stomach. He was often back in the hospital for monitoring, and we sat by helpless. At night, I would lay awake wondering if he would still be with us in the morning. Shortly before Christmas, we went to the pediatric cardiology ward at Greenland Hospital in Auckland, New Zealand. We stayed in a tent at a nearby campground because we couldn't afford a hotel. Our days were spent with Nicholas, watching as the staff took blood samples, ran tests, and made life bearable. The day of his first surgery was the worst day I can remember. To hand our child over to a stranger, to sign a form stating we accepted these terrible risks, and to walk away knowing we may never see him alive again is something I would wish on no one. We waited for hours and hours in a world that had lost all sounds, all colors, all meaning. We couldn't talk. We couldn't eat. We couldn't think. When a pager sounded to tell us he had at last entered intensive care recovery, we ran to the ward as though the hounds of hell were on our tails. I'll never forget that evening. 
Our tiny baby lay there on a white sheet, soaked in blood and iodine. Tubes and wires protruded from his body, and a thick blood-soaked gauze pad covered the wound, running from his chest around to his back. A machine was pumping his blood around. Another machine was breathing for him. To me, he had been murdered with my permission and then brought back to life again by the miracles of modern surgery. We sat by his side, taking turns sleeping and eating and walking outside like normal people. We watched other parents and shared their pain. We cried for the children who didn't make it. We cried for our child, and we cried for ourselves. Nicholas was one of the lucky ones. He recovered from the surgery and grew stronger every day. He drank from a bottle. He played happily in his crib on the floor. We went home. Many things happen when fate deals this sort of hand. For one thing, we discovered who our real friends were. Something else happens, too. There was a huge amount of pain, fear, and guilt experienced. It's okay when I was living it. Somehow I gained the strength needed to get by, but that strength is on credit, and someday the bill has to be paid. Different people pay for this in different ways. I got angry. I cried. I yelled. I ran and swam and chopped firewood with an axe. I gradually came to realize that this is okay. I'm allowed to feel angry, sad, and guilty. I think that perhaps my wife paid in a different way. Somehow, somewhere, a rift developed between us, and neither of us knew how to bridge it. In hindsight, I think it had probably been there for a while, but the stresses and strains of family life, financial burdens, and the hospital experiences were forcing it ever wider. The dragon was coming. We fought back in the following year and managed to regain a nearly normal life. Sure, there were weekly hospital visits, but I found a new job, and things were fairly stable when the second surgery came. Nicholas took longer to recover this time with some complications after the surgery slowing his progress, but soon we were home again. The rift was back, and it was wider than ever. We just didn't have the strength to support each other. It seemed all we could do to keep going every day, all we could do was to keep going every day. I paid more off my credit by yelling, crying, running. My wife seemed to handle it much better than I. Somehow the magic that we once had faded. The candlelight dinners were few and far between, and the walks on the beach were filled with conversations about money, hospitals, and work. Isn't it funny how you forget about the dragon? For us, the dragon came slowly, hiding behind feelings of guilt, depression, anger, and hopelessness. It whispered to her of a life without the burdens of marriage. It whispered to me that the good days would surely return. It beguiled me with hope and the sure knowledge that if I just tried hard enough, I could defeat it. It told her that nothing would ever be the same again, so why bother trying to save a dead relationship? It disguised itself in the form of one of my friends, whom my wife turned to for support, and whose arms she lay in for comfort while I slept alone. To read the full essay, you'll have to turn to page 85 to 89 in The Heart of a Father. And that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Please come back next week when our show will be called Non-Cardiac Health Issues for Survivors with Complex Congenital Heart Defects. Until then, please find and like us on Facebook, check out our website, Heart to Heart with Anna, and our new Cafe Press Boutique. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Welcome back, friends, and thanks for listening to today's show that dealt with relationships and was called How Parents' Relationships Are Affected by Having a Child with a Heart Defect. This was the 11th episode of Season 1, and it originally aired on January 21, 2014. I'm very happy to say that Brenda Vignaroli has decided to join us today for this live portion. Welcome to the show, Brenda. Thank you, Anna. Nice to talk to you again. I know, I always love talking to you. And if any of our listeners want to talk, they can call in at 646-200-4809. If you have a question for Brenda or if you have a question for me, that's the number to call, 646-200-4809. But when I invited Brenda back on, I invite all of my guests to come back on since we're we um, introducing these programs to our new network, which is Blog Talk Radio, and I 
invited everybody to think about if there was something they wanted to talk about, but we just didn't have enough time to talk about last time. And Brenda told me that she definitely thought of something that she would like to address. So, Brenda, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, what I wanted to say, well, what I wanted to do was actually give a shout-out to all those wonderful nurses out there in, in the ICUs and, and and just in the nurseries who take care of our children. It was a nurse that actually found my daughter, Jessica's, heart condition or knew that she had a problem going on and brought it to the attention of my doctor. We were getting ready to be sent home, and... um she knew something wasn't right, and she came into my room and, and explained to me that she was going to talk to my doctor because something, you know, something was concerning to her. And what it was was the color of the bottom of Jessie's feet, and her breathing also was very, very labored. And I was, again, I was having problems trying to feed her. She wasn't able to to nurse or anything like that in in the hospital room. So um, my doctor, it was shortly after that that um, I heard them talking out in the hallway, and he came in, and sure enough, that that that's what really got him going, and he called, um, you know, UCLA and set everything up and got her in there. I don't feel that, you know, it's hard to say. That I, I'm not even sure Jesse would be here today if it wasn't for that nurse. And I wish I wish I would have gotten her name. Everything was like you had said earlier was a tailspin whenever <laughs> things started happening, and I wasn't I unfortunately wasn't able to get her name. But I, I to this day believe that she um, played a big role in, in saving Jessica that during all of this. Uh, so that was that was basically what I wanted to say, and um, just just to give all the nurses out there a big shout out because they do a wonderful job. <laughs> they really do. And, you know, this is so amazing, Brenda, but my story is so similar to yours. Um, it, mm-hmm. it was a nurse who identified Alex's heart condition. The doctor, his pediatrician who admitted him to the hospital, thought he had cystic fibrosis, and he was set up for a whole slew of tests the next day because he mm. didn't get admitted until afternoon. And it was one of the night nurses who came in and saw me holding Alex, and he was breathing so hard at that point that you could even see a cleft in his chest. And she said to me, does he always breathe like that? And I said, yes, only it's getting worse, and my husband has been worried about this since the day he was born. And she said, that baby has a heart or a lung problem. Um, when, When did he have his x ray and I said, he's not scheduled for an x-ray. And she said, what? <laughs> and she's That's, the one who got the ball rolling. So isn't that exactly. amazing? I, I think it these amazing. nurses the, these nurses who work with these kids every day, and I wasn't at a hospital that normally treats children with heart. I think these nurses have an intuitive sense. And my husband's a nurse. He knew the minute Alex was born something was wrong. Yep. But since his specialty is not dealing with children with heart defects, he couldn't put his finger on it. We just kept bringing Alex back to the hospital every other day for his first 10 oh days my of life. Goodness. I mean, it went on for two months. It is such a miracle that Alex is with us. Yeah. Miracle. And indeed, Jessica. That, yeah. Yeah. The same thing with Jessica. But I didn't, you know, whenever this happened, you know, it just, like you said, it was like a tailspin. Everything was going on. I had no idea. what I I did notice her feet, but I didn't put two and two together there. Her feet were just completely purple. And and I kept trying to cover her and, and, you know, make her warm. And and, um, it was whenever the nurse came in and she said, you know, and and she told me straight out right there, she had a 12-year-old with a heart condition, and it just seemed like the pieces all went together. You know, it just all fell into place. And because of that, and she was aware of what to look for, and she knew something wasn't right, I know that if it wasn't for her, I'm not so sure Jesse would be here today. So that was what I wanted to do was just give a shout-out, like I said, out there to all of the wonderful nurses and staff that have dealt with this and know what to look for, and I'm sure there's been a lot of lives saved because of them. 
I agree 100%. And I think mm-hmm. today is National Nurses Day. So isn't this perfect yeah. that you're giving that shout-out today? <laughs> I have no idea. I know. Good. You just have perfect timing, Brenda. What can I say? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not always, believe me. Well, but I I'm think that you're right. And I think home. every day we should be giving a shout-out to those nurses, don't you? Because I it is too. such yeah. a hard job. Yeah, I know. I couldn't do it. Yeah, they're amazing people, and so many lives have been saved. They're on cue. I've met many of them over the years, and they're just right out there and right on top of everything. Very few of them have I met that weren't that way. Yeah, I give a shout-out to them. They do deserve their own special day, and I'm glad it's today. (laughs) Me too. And that's a perfect way for us to end this show. So thanks again for being on this show. Please come back again next week for another Encore presentation.